section 8. Revelation, we last chapter we saw the everlasting gospel saves people to the end of, of time. Revelation 8, we move to the opening, the seventh seal. As we look at the opening of the seventh seal, we're going to begin to see more and more of the judgment of God being unleashed upon the earth. And, and God's judgment is, for most of us, not something we like to think about. It's not something we like to study about or, or teach about. An aversion to God's judgment, it can cause us to minimize the judgment of God. When this happens, we we almost always never mention it. And when we do mention it, if we mention it, it's almost in an, an embarrassed, apologetic sort of way. And despite the fact that we don't like the judgment of God, the idea of it, there is no real way to talk about God accurately. Not the God of the Bible, if we don't talk about His judgment. The Word of God declares the judgment of God without embarrassment, without apology. When God sends judgment, he, he never apologizes. He always takes full credit for what it is He has done to bring judgment upon a people. The Word of God reveals the judgment of God just as surely as it reveals the love and the grace of God. The judgment of God is a, a massive theme throughout God's Word. So just a few examples. The flood in Genesis chapter 6. Something interesting is with judgment there's always grace and mercy as well. That the flood was God's judgment upon the world that flooded the people. But prior to the flood there was 120 years of Noah being a preacher of righteousness calling on people to repent which they did not do. Sodom and Gomorrah, God laid down fire and brimstone upon the city. But before He did, He sent His angel in to deliver a family. There's the Exodus. And as God delivers His people from 400 years of Egyptian slavery, He, he brings judgment upon the evil Egyptians and upon their gods. And as He does, He, he gives them opportunities to turn, but, but Pharaoh continually hardens his heart against God. The Egyptians at the Red Sea, the, the Israelites leave. They make it to the Red Sea. The Egyptians chase them. God parts the water. The Israelites go through, but the hardness of the Egyptians' heart, they pursue them. And so God floods them and destroys them. The conquest of the Promised Land in the book of Joshua. And yet, three, four hundred years prior to Joshua invading the, the Promised Land, God had told Abraham he would not give them the land because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. There was 400 years of mercy, 400 years of opportunities for them to turn from their wickedness and, and turn to the one true God. The book of Judges is filled with God's judgment upon rebellious people. But all of those judgments are preceded by prophets. Going to the people and saying, do not do this thing the Lord despises. Turn. Even now, God will call off the judgment. And they did not. The destruction of the northern, the northern kingdom and kings and chronicles. Again, more prophets to go to the people to say, don't do these things God hates. Turn to the Lord. The destruction of Jerusalem. Also kings 
and Chronicles. Also, more prophets going to the kings and the people and saying, turn from sin. The cross. We don't often think about the cross, but the cross shows us both God's great love for sinners and God's certain judgment against sin. If the Son of God is going to suffer so greatly at the hands of wicked men for sin, then surely the God who punished His Son will punish those who reject His Son. Will He not? If in the end God was going to overlook the sin of people, then the sending Jesus to the cross was indeed an act of cruelty and malice. But it's also an example of mercy, an example of grace. As now, Jesus calls us to come to Him, to receive His forgiveness, so that the judgment at the end will not fall upon us. In Acts chapter 5, there is a, a couple in the church who sell land and lie to the church about how much of it they gave. God kills them both. Kills the husband first. Gives the wife an opportunity to tell the truth, to come clean. She refuses and she is killed as well. Acts chapter 12. Herod, eaten from the inside by by bugs as a, an act of the judgment of God. Because he gave, he did not... Give God the glory when people were trying to praise Him as though He were God. He met Jesus. Had the opportunity to hear Him, but still He hardened His heart toward Him. These sort of stories, they consume huge portions of God's Word. For this is by no means an exhaustive list. And other than the cross, these other stories of God's judgment are, are sort of like the warm-up. They're the pre-game show. For what is going to happen in the book of Revelation. So today we're going to look at the beginning of God's judgment. Of all of the people on the earth. In an effort to understand. The judgment of God. So open your Bible to Revelation 8. Should be on page 953 in the Pew Bible. When you find that I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense ascended from the angel's hand with the prayers of the saints before God. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire of the altar, and hurled it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. We'll stop here today. Title today's message is Understanding Judgment. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Today we need to understand judgment. The world we live in, Father doesn't want you to be God. They want you to judge in the way we think you ought to. They want you to judge the people we don't like. The world is telling us that, that if you bring about judgment, you're not good and you're not righteous. The same world says if you let certain things go on and you 
don't execute judgment. You're not good and you're not righteous. The world, the world wants to be God. The culture wants to determine righteousness and goodness, truth. The culture wants to to be worshipped. The culture wants to be followed. But the culture is not you. But we live in this culture. We are constantly assaulted with these ideas and these thoughts. And when we're not grounded in your word, these ideas and these thoughts can make sense. They can begin to, to stick in our hearts and they can begin to push us away from you. So today we need you to take your word and to use it like a hammer to smash the strongholds that the culture and we have tried to erect in our minds to protect us from understanding who you are and what you're really like. We need you and your spirit to take your word and to use it like a sword to, to convict us. Convict us of our sin. Because ultimately, that's why we don't like the idea of judgment. If there is a God who judges, then my sin may well deserve judgment. And if I can find a way to numb that pain, I don't have to think about it. Take your word and your spirit and let your word be a fire that, that melts the hardness of our hearts. So they would be tender toward your word. your word and spirit plow up the fallow ground of our hearts so your word can sink deep in and bring forth good fruit, the fruit of salvation, the fruit of sanctification, the fruit of a deepening devotion to Jesus. Take what happens here today and let it be a day that the world changes for us. Day we're We're no longer the same because of what Christ has done in us and through us and for us. Block out the things of the world. Push back the enemy and let him not come in to deceive and distract this morning. Let your word and your spirit penetrate us. Change us. Convict us. Strengthen us. Enable us to be fully devoted disciples of Jesus that shine like a light in a dark and a dying world. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Of course, the seventh seal is the last seal of the six seals that began to be broken In Revelation chapter 6, Jesus calls this the the beginning of sorrows. This has revealed the Antichrist to us. Initially, he brings peace and prosperity. uh, But this prosperity gives way to war, to chaos, to famine, to plagues, to death by the beasts of the field, to great natural disasters, as well as an all-out war on the saints of God. And now, the the sixth seal was broken. There was an interlude in chapter 7. And now verse chapter 8, verse 1, the Lamb breaks the seventh seal. And when He does, there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now this is different than the other six seals because when the other six seals were broken, something happened immediately. And there are two primary theories as to why there's silence at this point. One is so heaven can hear the, the prayers of the saints. Can you hear them? Listen, do you hear them? How long, 
O Lord, holy and true. Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? The silence could be so that there's nothing to distract, nothing to take away from listening to the saints under the altar as they cry out to God for justice upon an evil world that has murdered them for their faith and their devotion to Christ. This is a plausible theory. As verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 3 uh, begins to talk about the prayers of the saints. The other theory is heaven is silent because what is about to happen? The seventh seal releases the seven trumpet judgments. We're not going to look at them today. We should look at them all next week at the same time. And when you look at them, they're bad. I mean, they're just really, really bad. So the seven angels are given seven trumpets and they're going to blow them consecutively one after the other. And as they do, there is judgment that begins to fall upon the earth in various ways. And so the theory is this silence is a silence of reverence, a silence of respect, a silence of of awe at the Jesus who is breaking this seal and unleashing these judgments Upon the earth and and almost a fear. If I could use the word horror. At what's coming. And what's going to befall the people of earth. At this time. Also certainly plausible considering the severity. Of the seven trumpets. The angel gives those trumpets. To the people. To the angels that are going to blow them. Another angel comes. He comes to the altar. He has a a golden censer with much incense. So he adds it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which is before the throne. Here's one artist's idea of of what this kind of looks like. I I wish there were better pictures, um, but there is no picture that could, I think, properly give justice to what is happening in this. The offering of incense seems to be a reference to the Day of Atonement when incense was placed on the coals. In the censer by the high priest, he would then enter the Holy of Holies with a blood sacrifice. In this instance, the incense is mingled with the prayers to the saints and poured out upon the altar so they would rise up to God. In the Old Testament, this would be called a a sweet-smelling savor to God. As the smoke of the incense ascends from the angel's hand with the prayers of all the saints in verse 4... The angel takes the censer. He fills it with fire from the altar and he hurls it to the earth. And there are peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Here's an idea of what it looks like as he does this. This dramatically pictures the the coming trumpet judgments as an answer to the prayers of the saints of God against the demonic Powers of evil who have oppressed those who were faithful to Christ, to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It is a prayer for the kingdom of God to come and God's will to be done. The background of this image is Ezekiel 10 2, where coals from the fire from between the cherubim are scattered over Jerusalem as a token of, of God's judgment. Then in verse 6, the angels prepare themselves to sound. I imagine they put them to their lips and they take in the breath and they're about to to blow. 
And this is where we'll stop today. And when we get here next week, if you take time this week and read chapter 8 and chapter 9, you'll see these judgments are are severe. They're, they're very bad. And it's upon the whole earth. This is going to be a part of the theme. Is this judgment doesn't fall on America and it doesn't fall on Israel. It falls on the whole earth. And it could lead a question. Why? I mean, other than the flood, the other judgments I mentioned were all localized. Egypt was judged, but not the rest of the world. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, but not all the cities around there. The Amorites in the promised land, the people of Israel, a deceitful married couple, one particular wicked leader in a world of wicked leaders. However, when we get to Revelation, this is expanded beyond individuals and localized places to all the people on on the earth at the time. So the question is, why does God bring judgment on the entire world? And what I want to do today is spend the rest of our time answering that question. For truly, if we do not understand God's judgment, why He sends judgment, why He judges the whole earth, we're going to read these things and we're going to think, gosh, God is so mean. God is so harsh. People aren't that bad. So why is God sending such severe judgments? Turn to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 18. That should be page 857 if you have a pew Bible. Romans 1, we're going to read verse 18. And we'll kind of go through to, we won't read the whole the rest of the chapter. We won't have time. There's just various parts I want to, to point out. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now there are two phrases we need to understand. The first is the wrath of God. The second is from heaven. So this passage, these two phrases, make it unmistakable what's happening in this passage. It is God's wrath being sent from God onto the earth. This isn't describing a bad day. This isn't describing a series of circumstances. This isn't describing a society evolving beyond the need for some sort of a theistic God. This isn't a society turning and saying they're going to live by their truth and so there's just random things happen. No. No. This is God intervening in the world and pouring out His temporal wrath on the people. It is God who is doing this. But notice it says... That His wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So, His wrath isn't revealed from heaven against just everyone and anyone. There is a specific type of person the wrath of God is poured out upon. The ungodly and the unrighteous. What makes them ungodly and unrighteous? Well, we're given the answer. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Right? These people are ungodly and unrighteous because they, they reject the truth, consistently reject God's truth, 
And they attack God's messengers who seek to tell them of the truth. What truth are they rejecting? Well, we're told that as well. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. The primary truth they are rejecting is God's truth about himself. They are rejecting God's revelation of himself. Now, God has made himself known. He has revealed himself in at least four specific ways. He has revealed himself in nature. Right. The creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and nature have been clearly perceived. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. How do we know there's a creator? Because there's a creation. How do I know there's a piano maker? Because there's a piano. The heavens declare there is a God. And man has said no. It's random chance and circumstance. That's how the heavens were made. God's truth is revealed in our conscience. Romans 2 and 15 says that the conscience is is given to us by God to, to testify about what's right and what's wrong. It is a way to say, you know this is what's right. You know in some levels this is wrong. But, but the people say no. No, we've just evolved. And because we've evolved, we've, we've picked this moral code up that's what's good for our society. But it's nothing to do with God in our creation. God's truth is revealed in God's word. God has revealed himself through his word. But, but people say, no, goat farmers don't know more about how the world works than scientists today do. No, that sort of outdated morality doesn't reveal anything about a God if there is a God. It's just a book. God's truth is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate revelation of God. And and the world says, no, Jesus, if he existed... He was just a God. Granted, he he taught some good things, but he was just a guy. And the picture in these verses is humanity recognizes God's revelation in some fashion. And then they reject it. But not only do they reject it, it specifically says they suppress it. So not only do they reject it for themselves, they actively work. To do all they can to keep God's truth from going forward. This is further seen in verse 21. For even though they they knew God or knew about God. They did not honor him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their reasonings. And their senseless hearts were darkened. They knew about God. And rather than submit to God. They rejected him. Not once but but repeatedly. This isn't a picture of the Spirit working in someone's life, trying to reveal Jesus to them, and they once rejected, and then all of this happens. This is a continual, intentional rejection. This isn't someone with maybe honest doubts and questions. This is someone who says, I don't want anything to do with that. They push it away. 
Their rejection of God is described in two ways. They, they choose not to glorify God. They refuse to worship God as creator. They refuse to come to God as redeemer. They refuse to submit to God as king. They refuse to serve God as worthy. And the rejection of God flows from their rejection of the revelation of God. God reveals himself to humanity. And they refuse to worship him as God because they don't like what is revealed about God. See, that's the point. It's not that they they don't know or there's not something there that tells them it's true. They don't like what's revealed about God. What does what does the revelation of God tell us about God? It tells us God is sovereign. But a part of what it means for God to be sovereign is he is the king. The king over king, the Lord over Lord, the ruler of all creation, including humanity. As the sovereign king, God has the right to make laws. God, not humanity, not culture, not anyone or anything else determines what is right, what is righteous and what is good. As the sovereign king, God also gets to determine what is wrong, what is unrighteous and what is evil. Now, right away, you can see why this would be a problem with humanity. If God determines right and wrong, culture's views, humanity's views really don't matter. Right. So what our culture determines is right and wrong is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what laws a nation passes about what's right and wrong. They don't determine that. It doesn't matter what a group decides together this is right and this is wrong. They don't determine that. At the same time, if God determines right and wrong, my feelings about right and wrong don't matter. And in a, and in a world where our feelings are elevated above all things, I, I feel this is right. I'm just following my heart. To say this is wrong makes me feel bad. Therefore, it can't be right. And to all of that, the revelation of a sovereign God says, it doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you like. God is the supreme lawgiver. And he determines what's right and what's wrong. For people who want to chart their own course, live by their own truth, determine their own morality, the idea of a sovereign God who rules all things, including them, it's an idea that must be rejected. God is sovereign, but God is also holy. The absolute holiness of God is problematic because we aren't holy. The reason God's holiness is a problem to our unholiness is because of God's justice. For God to be holy, He must also be just. And for God to be just, those who violate His law must be punished. They must receive the due reward for their crimes. Now, we know this on a natural level, don't we? When someone does something against society, when they commit a crime and they go to court, and because they're famous, the courts let them off in ways we know that no one we know would be let off, we feel that is unjust. 
That is wrong. That is not a just judge. Well, if we expect that from an earthly human judge, how much more should we expect that from a holy, perfect judge? For God to be just, He must give sinners the punishment they deserve. And this means we are ultimately accountable to God. That is a fearful thought. Humans, we're a funny creature. Especially when it comes to justice. People we don't know ought to get pure justice. People we don't like ought to get straight justice. But us and people we love, well, they ought to get something different. There ought to be an exception made for it. I'll use this as an example, and I, don't, I shouldn't. It's not in my notes. I don't have time, but I'm going to do it anyway. I think we see it in relation to the, the riots that happened this year and last year. Conservatives really think those who burned down the city should face the pure justice of the law. And liberals think they should be accepted from that. Because of the the reasons for their anger and their riots. Meanwhile, liberals think those who rioted at the Capitol on January the 6th, they should face the the pure justice of the law. But but those who are more conservative often think, well, they were just angry and and it was a different issue. Right? We, We think those we don't agree with deserve the pure justice of God. Or the pure justice of the law. But those we do agree with. Those we can sympathize with. They deserve an exception. And we bring that to the idea of God. Yes, those people should absolutely face the judgment of God for their idolatry and their wickedness. But but my loved one, me, there should be some sort of exception made. But a holy God can't make exceptions. A holy God must give pure justice. And the idea that there aren't exceptions for me. That I'm not the exception to the rule. I'm not special in this. Well, that's intolerable. And it leads humanity to reject God. God is sovereign. God is holy. God is omniscient. God knows everything about everything. And if God knows everything about everything, then what God has said about humans and human nature is true. And what God has said is, We're sinners by nature. What God has said is the natural course of our life is led by the prince of the power of the air and it leads to the wrath and the judgment of God. God has said we can't fix that on our own because we're dead in our sins. God has said the only hope to change that comes through faith in Jesus, that we must repent from our sin and we must turn to Jesus Otherwise, we face the holy justice of God. We don't like that. I should be able to do it myself. I can fix myself. God's omniscience means He also knows the secrets of our hearts and our minds and our lives. 
He knows the secrets we try to hide from other people. He knows the motives behind our actions. God's knowledge of humanity, what He has said about human nature, well, it disturbs humanity. It's not a comfortable truth. And it leads them to reject God. And then God is immutable. Sovereign, holy, omniscient, immutable. Immutable means unchanging. God will always be sovereign. God will always be holy. God will always be omniscient. God will always hold people accountable for sin. God will always hold people accountable for rejecting His truth. God will always hold people to His standard of right, righteousness, of goodness. God will always punish sin. God will never make exceptions. And He'll never excuse anyone. God will hold you and I to the exact same standard Billy Graham is held to. The the unchanging, unwavering nature of God is, is horrifying to a humanity that wants everything to conform to them, fit with them. And so they reject Him. Not only does humanity refuse to glorify God when they reject Him, but they also refuse to thank God, it says. Not only do they not honor Him, but they do not give Him thanks. Now, those who do this would say, well, God has never done anything for me. If there is a God, He has never done anything for me. Of course, they are willfully or just plain ignorant of the common graces God pours out upon all humanity. Jesus said God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. James said every good and perfect thing we have in this world, it comes from God. God causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall and the crops to grow. He gives people the intelligence to develop technology and medicine. He gives us the breath of life. Everything we have that is good is from God. No matter who it is, whether we're a disciple of Jesus or whether we hate the concept of God, anything good we have is a good gift from a good God. But humans who reject God refused to acknowledge His role in these things, and so they refused to give Him thanks. The result of rejecting God is humanity becomes futile in their reasonings, in their, their mind. Their, their hearts become darkened. The idea of their thinking, their, their reasonings becoming futile, it, it means their thoughts about God become wrong or worthless. Instead of receiving the revelation about what God is truly like, they begin to make up wrong and worthless ideas about what God is really like. Rather than worship the great and the glorious God as He is, they come up with foolish ideas about who God is and what God is like. They, they rid themselves of all the uncomfortable truths about God so they can remake God into an image of their liking. A kinder, gentler God who... Makes them feel all warm and fuzzy on the inside. A God who loves all the people they love. And a God who hates all the people they hate. A God who thinks exactly the way they think about every single issue. A God who votes the way they vote. A God who affirms all the sins they want to commit. A God who never challenges them. 
who never corrects them, who never makes demands on them, and who never expects them to change in any way, they don't want to change. And in all of this, it is a God who is a figment of their imagination and a reflection of the fact they have become futile in their thinking. Now, one of the main problems with rejecting God is rejecting God doesn't end humanity's accountability to God. God isn't God because we believe in Him. The Bible isn't true because we believe it's true. God is God because God is God. God is sovereign not because I say He is or because we believe, collectively we believe He is. God is sovereign because He is sovereign. If if the whole world ceased to believe it, God, all at once, and we burned all of our Bibles, and in a generation, there was no knowledge of God on the earth, He would still be sovereign, holy, omniscient, immutable. He would still be God. Jesus would still be His Son who lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, and rose victorious over the grave. Human belief in God changes nothing about who God is or what God is like. God exists and is the final authority because He exists and is the final authority. Nothing humanity does changes that. Another problem with rejecting is that when we don't worship God, we find something else to worship. Humans are hardwired to worship. Worship isn't merely singing. Singing is an expression or an act of worship. The heart of worship is declaring or demonstrating worth. And the way we worship is ultimately is how we declare someone's worth. We demonstrate their worth by making someone or something the central object of devotion in our lives. And we take this, whatever it is, and we make it central. We make it ultimate in our lives and our lives begin to revolve around it. Our lives are devoted to this, whatever this is. And whatever is ultimate in our lives is what we worship. When God is not ultimate and the object of our worship, something or someone else will be ultimate and the object of our worship. Verse 22 says they claimed to be wise, they became fools. It's a great explanation of something we so often hear in our day. Humanity has evolved. They're too smart to believe in a theistic God like the God of the Bible. But rather than this demonstrating wisdom, it it demonstrates foolishness. And the foolishness is most clearly seen in what they replace God with. Because again... They're too wise to believe in the God of the Bible, but they still have something that is ultimate, that is the object of their devotion. And they exchange the the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, bird, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. They exchange the, the glory of God and they begin to worship 
corruptible things. Rather than worshiping the incorruptible God, they replace him with corruptible things. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. It goes on to talk about they begin to worship creation, a creation rather than the creator. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They end up worshiping something created rather than the creator of all things. They replace creator God for a human creation. Now, there are multiple ways this happens. One is in exchanging the truth of God for a lie about God. This is usually in relation to some aspect of God's character and nature. We've talked about certain aspects of God's character and nature. Humanity doesn't like, and so what they do is they replace it. They don't like a holy God, and so they replace the truth with a lie that says God's really maybe not that much different than we are. They don't like the idea of the judgment of God, so they replace the truth with a lie about a God who has no judgment. Perhaps they don't like the uniqueness of Jesus as the sole source of salvation. So they replace the truth with a lie that everyone goes to heaven. In the end, there are so many ways this could be play out. um, And it does play out in our world. The main idea is that they exchange the uncomfortable truths about God for comfortable lies that are contradicting God. And once humanity has rejected God... They replace God often by making the desires of their heart ultimate. This we see so very often in our world. They live and do whatever they want without any regard to what God has said on the subject. They live by their desires. They, they give reasons why this desire is acceptable by what, despite what God said. The heart wants what it wants. Well, that's not really relatable to today. The world is, is different Regardless how they explain they're giving in to these desires, the actual reason is they're saying they have made their their desires ultimate instead of God. And that's really the key. Someone says, well, I I know the Bible says this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. God is not ultimate in their lives anymore, if he ever was to begin with. Their desire for that thing is ultimate in their lives. They've replaced God with their desires. Their desires are, in essence, their God. And as this goes on, and humanity rejects God and exchanges the truth for a lie, look at verse 29. They go headlong into sin. People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, deceit, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, malice, gossips, Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. So they've got headlong into sin, but look at what it goes on to say. And although they know the ordinance of God, that they, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they approve of those who practice them. Now this doesn't necessarily mean that they believe what the Bible says about God's judgment, just that they kind of 
know it. And not only do they know it, but they mock it. They not only know it and mock it and do it, but they encourage others to do it. They they celebrate their sin. You, you could even say they just dedicate their lives to being pride over their sin. And all of that is a sign of a culture, is a sign of a people who have been given over. A sign of a people who have rejected God and have replaced God with something else. Now the degeneration we see in this passage, it's not something that it happened at some point in the past or it may happen at some point in the future. It's happening right now. You, you can look at, at America and you can see all of these things, but it's not just America. You look at any nation on the planet and you see all of these things. We, we see them in, in Gaiman. And all of this is not accidental. It is an intentional, continual moving away from God. It is a contention. It is a continual, intentional rejecting the truth of God and replacing that with a lie. It is the continual, intentional telling God, you will not rule over me. I will rule over myself. This is why God sends judgment on the world. Because the world has rejected God. The world has told the sovereign king, creator, the redeemer. I don't want you. I don't need you. I will do whatever I want to do. Do your worst to me. One one final thought before we close. Often our our human sensibilities are offended by the judgment of God. We see God as too harsh. His judgment as too severe. But this is simply not the case. Judgment is never God's preference. God's preference is always to save and not to judge. God's temporal judgment, the judgment like we see here that happens on this earth, that's not the eternal judgment is always redemptive in nature. All earthly judgment, even the stuff, the stiff earthly judgment in trumpets of revelation, is to show sinful humanity the severity of their sins. So they will turn from their sins, turn to Jesus, and be saved. We saw in Revelation 7, the everlasting gospel saves people till the end of time. My daily Bible reading is in Revelation. And and towards the end, there is an angel flying through the heavens declaring the everlasting gospel. Up until the very end, God is calling for people to repent, to turn from their sin, to be saved. And what we want to think is when the judgment happens, God is just being so mean and so harsh to, to pour this out on these poor people who are going to cry out, oh, God, be merciful. But that's not what happens. Because at the end of the trumpets, the mankind who were not killed did not repent of 
the works of their hands so as not to worship demons, idols of gold, silver, brass, and stone, and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They did not repent of their murders, nor their witchcraft, nor their sexual immorality, nor their thefts. It wasn't they could not repent. They would not repent. At a later point, they actually curse God for this and do not repent. God's judgment comes ultimately because of the hardness of human hearts who reject Him, resist Him, and even in the midst of judgment that is giving them an opportunity to turn, they refuse so they can be saved from the judgment. It's the question before us. It's not, can God save me? Or will God save me? The question is, will we turn to God and be saved? Or will we, in light of the sure judgment described in His Word, will we say, I'm exchanging the truth of God for a lie. I'll be the exception. Will we say, I will not bow the knee to God? Will we say, no, no, you don't understand, preacher. The world is different. It never meant what it says. The question, will we believe the truth of God's word and thus go to God? Or will we replace the truth of God with a lie, harden our hearts, and face the sure judgment of God? Two, there are many ways we could respond, but there are two needed responses. One is to flee from the judgment to come. The judgment of God is coming. And if you personally have never repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ, make no mistake, it is coming for you flee the judgment of God by coming to Jesus this morning. Flee the judgment of God by repenting of your sins and believing on Christ. Thinking this is a light matter, this is a funny thing, is a dangerous response. And then rush to warn others. The judgment of God is coming. And if you've repented of your sins and you've believed in Jesus Christ, you are duty bound to go to those who have not repented of their sins, have not believed in Jesus Christ. Share with them the good news of a Savior who came and urge them to flee the judgment to come. Let's stand. Some musicians. No, our musicians aren't coming forward. Let's stand. Heads bowed and eyes.